0: Good evening, my name is David, and I am an no alcoholic. That is the single most important thing I'll say to tonight, that beyond a shadow of a doubt in my head, but much, much more so beyond a shadow of a doubt in my heart, today I know that I'm an no alcoholic. Could you please join me in getting started here with the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things
1: I cannot change.
0: With the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom's other difference. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned, uh, uh my name is David, I'm an alcoholic and that is truly the most important thing that I say here tonight. Um For a long, long time, I argued about that, I debated about that, I philosophized about that, I theologized about that, I had hands laid on me, I was sprinkled, I was gouged. I was dumped, I was locked up in rooms without doorknobs on my side. All kinds of crazy things would happen today as a direct result of my inability to accept the fact that I was an Oklahoma. So for me, the most powerful thing that I will say tonight is that beyond a shadow of a doubt, my heart today... I know. Uh, I also have a tendency to be a nervous alcoholic. Uh, that has never ever ever changed for me. Uh, when I'm called and I'm asked to be here, I jot it down. I, first of all, I say yes simply because I have the kind of home group that would break both of my legs if I said no. <laughs> and it's not any great virtue on me. <laughs> Uh, And and so I I say yes, I mark it on my day timer, I stick it on my calendar, and I have one of those uh, support group, home group sponsor crews that knows in my business. (laughs) They keep track of where I have to be, when I have to be there, and what I have to do when I get there. And then they show up with me to make sure I get there and don't check out before I'm done doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So it's not a lot of virtue. It's just the way that I was sponsored in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I get nervous, I get anxious, I get scared. Usually selfish, self-centered kind of fears like, one of these nights, I'm going to stand up here, open my mouth, my dentures are going to... Start. You're going to see how terribly flawed I really am. And, and, like, you may not like me. And, like, God, what would I do if you didn't like me, you know? And this is the last house on the block for me. So, uh, you know, it's important that you like me. At any rate, I get here and I get here very nervous, I get here anxious, and, and, and tonight was no different as we were driving down here, the butterflies turned into black birds in my stomach, and as we got closer and closer to my heaven to come up here... Uh, I began to feel my heart pounding in my chest, and, and I can feel my pulse throbbing in my shoes, and my hands are cold and clammy and sweaty, and there's sweat running down into my arms, and I used deodorant twice before I left <laughs> the Signs and symptoms that I today refer to as stark raving terror. That's how I get here. That has never, ever changed But I'll tell you what you people have taught me that it is very healthy signs and symptoms for data manager. Because you see, there was a day and a time and a place in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, May 26, 1981, when I was incapable of feeling anything. My wife and my mother-in-law helped me into the emergency room of the Westmoreland County Hospital. They wheeled me in. I was swollen up all over the place. The nurse kept arguing with me, and I kept arguing with her. She kept saying, David, you having a heart attack. And I kept saying, Lady, you don't know what you're talking about. This is alcoholism. I knew all about it. I had been detoxed before, and I knew all about what was wrong. I drank too dang much. And she said, David, you having a heart attack. By noon of that day, I was in the intensive care cardiac ward. My heart was three times its normal size. My liver was twice its normal size. The digestive system had shut down completely. It looked like a little rubber band down the center of the x-rays. I would go into a brain fever would set in. I would go in and out of a coma, for the next 14 days, they would pronounce me dead twice. All as a direct result of my use and abuse of drugs. And so, you see, it's very healthy that I can be here tonight. It's very healthy that I can tell you that I'm sucking air tonight. It's very healthy that I can tell you that I get scared and anxious and nervous when I have to do these kind of things because I'm alive today. By the grace of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps and the traditions, I have a place to go and I can be alive today. I'm asked to give you in a general way what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. And I hope to be able to do that this evening. Born and raised in the Pennsylvania mountains, I was a skinny, scrawny little hillbilly boy. I knew the effects of alcohol on a family very early in my life. My old man drank, and my old man drank abusively. And I share that with you because when he drank, he got abusive. And, and the only reason that I need to share that fact with you is because he became David's first great resentment in life. I hated my old man, and I feared my old man, I grew up in a hunting area uh, i would uh, although i didn 't hunt I would help my my cousins who did and I knew what it was like to to, to uh, clean deer and rabbit and squirrel, and I knew what that warm, sticky blood kind of feeling was. And as a youngster, I used to fantasize a lot. I don't know about you, but I fantasized a lot. Usually, I fantasized being Tarzan, or Mr. Atlas, you know, someone who really grew up with a real man. And, and, and I would fantasize uh, that warm, sticky blood feeling on my hands, that I wanted to feed the old man's. Uh, I would fantasize homicide, because I hated him and I feared him so terribly much. Uh, as a result of fearing and hating my old man so much, uh, I, I, ran, I ran with my mother. I, she became one of my best friends, and she was a devout Catholic churchgoer, and I became a devout Catholic churchgoer. And I went to two different Catholic churches in town. Uh, I was an altar boy in one of them. I ran uh, up I very, very hard trying to be a good little boy. Uh, I ran to the church to hide. I didn't necessarily run there uh, to a God of my understanding as I was young. I ran there because it was a safe place for me to run to. Uh, I ran there because. Uh, when I got there, I could be okay. You see, they would dress me up in those little altar boy robes and the little bubba's would come into church and they would pat me on the top of the head and they'd say, oh, isn't he cute, isn't he sweet, isn't he holy looking? And I would suck that shit up. <laughs> yeah, I'm cute, I'm sweet, I'm holy looking. They were the only strokes I got. You see, as I grew up, I made promises. I promised my mama I'd never drink like the old man. And I never smoked like he smoked, and I would never make her cry like he made her cry. But the other thing that I did growing up is I always compared my insides to your outsides. And nobody ever bothered to tell me that when you walk out the front door, you dress up your outsides. And, and I would look at you, and you were the glamorous people in the world. You were the, the football players, and the basketball players, and the basement. This is not the body you play football with. It really isn't. You know, I would get mistaken for being the football. you were the the valedictorians of the class and I flunked third grade it's like how do you flunk third grade You know, I, I was the flunky I was the stupid one I was dumb, I was skinny, I was scrawny I was little, I was inadequate and I was inferior and people let me know they stepped up to let me know those things and so I would walk around feeling all that and I was terrified most of the time and then I would look at you and you seemed to feel life, and you seem to be a part of life, and I looked at life like I was observing it, like I was never a part of it, and I just never fit, and so when I ran to church, I ran there to be okay, I ran there to be safe, I didn't have any skills at living life on life's terms, and as I grew up, uh, with the help from the priest of the church, I began to believe that maybe just maybe these feelings of being very separate and very different than everybody wasn't necessarily different than, and that maybe these feelings were different good or better than anything. And then maybe, just maybe, God had some very, very special plans for do. And maybe what I really ought to do is when I graduate from high school, I ought to like give away all my worldly possessions. I was a very stupid, naive little hillboy boy. <laughs> Pack myself into two AMP shopping bags, and if you can remember AMP, you've got a real good idea how old I am. And, and go off to a monastery to become a Catholic priest. So upon graduation, that's exactly what I did. I gave away all my worldly possessions. I packed myself into two A&B shopping bags, and off to a monastery in Newton, New Jersey I went. I get to this lovely monastery. I looked around the room. There were nine other young men studying for the priesthood in this place, and this priest. Now, I'm going to share with you what I saw that night. I'm not going to share with you the truth, because I don't know if I really know that. What I saw that night was I saw nine other young men who were six foot six inches tall. They were football players, basketball players, and baseball players. They were valedictorians in their class. You could tell just by looking at them. They were smart. But what was worse was they were wholesome and holy-looking kind of guys. They were the kind of guys you looked at, and you just knew they had... Never said the word shit. (laughs) Butter would not melt in their mouths. They were so wholesome looking. And then there's me, the one who fantasizes homicide with the old man. (laughs) It's like, I do not fit here. I really do not fit. And and along came the priest, and he said, gentlemen, if you chip in for pizza, I'll bring the beer, and we'll have a celebration to celebrate everybody's return to school. And I dug deep in my pocket, and I chipped in for pizza, and I came to their little party, and that priest walked in with two sex packs, Carlin black label tin. Now, some of you have tried Carlin black label out of the can. At any rate, I had kept those promises that I had made to my mama all those years. I knew the pain that this stuff caused in our home. It didn't slow me down one bit. Everybody reached out and grabbed a piece of pizza, and so did I, and then they grabbed a can of beer, and so did I. I popped the top of that can of beer, and I began to guzzle my first beer. I had no idea what I was in for. I, oh, it was foul, nasty, yeasty tasting crap. I mean, it burned in my mouth, and then it burned in my throat, and then I kept getting this tear in my eye that I had to keep blinking away so these macho dudes didn't see me cry, and then I got this bubble right here, and this gas can't go for here. Right <laughs> I figured I'm going to puke all over these guys at any given point in time. And, and so I'd drink a little more and shove it down in there. Somewhere, I, mean, I hated it. I hated absolutely everything that was going on. I and mean, then somewhere, somewhere in around the first half of that first beer, I had what I refer to as my first religious experience. <laughs> now, my first religious experience went like this. I got this warm glow (laughs) right in the pit of my stomach and it began to grow, it began to get bigger. And bigger, and bigger, and I began to roll my shoulders. I began to feel myself growing up to be six foot six inches tall. I became a football player, a basketball player, and a baseball player. I became a blue eyed blonde. I became the valedictorian of my class that night. I looked around the room at all those other guys, and I figured, hmm, I could walk better, talk better, sing better, and dance better. Uh, And I proceeded to do all of them that night in the monastery in my underwear. I had my first cigarette, a camel mom, and I inhaled in the beginning. Uh, they tried sticking me to bed in the room and spit, and they'd say, and put your foot on the floor. I put those feet on the floor. I loved what was happening to me. I fell madly and passionately in love with John from the get-go. Uh, I would sneak out of bed. I would run touchdowns down the hall. I yodeled at to the top of my voice. at <laughs> 3 o'clock in the morning. They'd on that shit in the monastery. I had arrived. For the very first time in my life, I felt like a human being. For the, I had found my solution. Please hear that. I found my solution to life. Life was my problem. That night, I found a solution. I mean, like all of the promises came true in one night. I intuitively knew how to handle everything. I mean, it was wonderful. I had arrived in the human race. And and it was a guarded thing for me, it truly was. That night, I I, I made a fool out of myself and... I did do all those crazy things. I danced through the monastery halls in my underwear and, and all that stuff. And eventually they caught me. They stuck me in bed, but I stuck and, uh, and passed out, went to sleep, I don't know. And, and uh, in the wee hours of the morning, I rolled over. And I wasn't blessed with a blackout that night. Uh, there would be many nights that I would, but it wasn't that night. And as I rolled over and I looked up at that tile ceiling over I remembered all those embarrassing, shameful things that I had done. And then I remember those wholesome and holy-looking guys and the feelings of shame and guilt and remorse were around me. And I thought, oh God, what am I going to do? I, don't, I didn't have any skills at living life on life's terms and, and, and there's no more alcohol to make these feelings go away. And, and I just didn't know what to do and I panicked. I, I crawled out of my bed, my little bed and I went across the hall of the lavatory. I dug through my shaving equipment. I found a single-edged razor and I proceeded to commit suicide Two of those young men came in and found me with a razor to my wrists. They took the razor away from me. They took me back into that little monastery bedroom. They tied me down to my little metal cot. The next morning, they came in and they untied me. And they said things to me that people would say to me for a long, long time. They said, David, you don't drink like normal people. David, you ought not drink alcohol. David, you have a drinking problem. And I said to them just as clearly as I'm saying to you tonight, but you don't understand. But you don't understand. I never drank before. All I have to do is learn to get it right. All I have to do is learn how to to, to control it. All I have to do is... I I had found my solution and I knew it. I wasn't about to let that solution go. By the end of that school year, I had acquired a taste for alcohol, preferably yours. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking about what you were serving, how you were serving it, I, you know, out of, the bottle, out of the bottle, out of the brown paper bag, beer, wine, whiskey, I really didn't care. Um, as long as it was yours, you were serving, I was drinking, it was getting me there, I was cool. Um, at the end of that first uh, school year, they informed me that the bishop was going to send me to this very straight-laced, conservative place in Pittsburgh. I knew that was going to be a problem. You see, I had already acquired a, a need for alcohol on a regular basis, and, and I knew that very, very straight-laced place was going to dress me up in those long black robes with that little piece of plastic that used to slip my Adam's apple off. <laughs> and, and it had these great these deep sleeves and these great these deep pockets that were like for your prayer books and your hymnals and your, your uh, rosary beads and my pints and my quarts and my... <laughs> and anything else that I decided to smuggle in the monastery, and that's exactly what I began to do. I took up carpentry. They did not offer it on the curriculum. I found out in my little bedroom, there was a bed and a desk and a chair and a sink and a medicine chest. And I found out you could open the medicine chest up, take all your junk out of it, you could take the two screws out of that, that whole thing came right out of the wall. You could tie a string around the neck of your bottle, slide it down between the two 2 fours, tie it off on a nail, stick the medicine chest back in, put all your crap back in, and when, they, when the prefect came around and searched your room, he couldn't find your bottle. They couldn't figure out how this little monk stayed so drunk all the time. They wanted me to sing at 7 o'clock in the morning. Now, obviously you've never heard me sing. I don't sing well sober. I certainly don't sing well drunk. But I sang louder drunk. And so I would make sure that I was good and drunk. And I'm a few good double headers, And then I'd go in the chapel and I'd just be singing my little iron. And they'd be up there searching my room. You know? this, uh, this went on quite often. And, and the part that I really need to remember about that is that uh, You people eventually taught me that I had a threefold disease, physical, mental, and spiritual. I'm here to tell you, please, please, please remember, I got spiritually sick first, and it didn't matter where I was living. I was living in a monastery. I was living in a church. I was in chapel two and three and four and five times a day. My prayers were no less sincere then than they are today. I had a disease called alcoholism. I chose to put alcohol in my body, and I got spiritually sick. Now, that spiritual sickness began to show itself in the form of being very selfish and very self-centered. I began to point the finger at all those hypocritical Catholics that come to church on Sunday morning. I mean, I took everybody's inventory said David's. I began to point the finger at those hypocritical Catholics that would come to church, shake your hand, and say "peace be with you, brother," and run you over in the parking oh. lot. <laughs> and then I started to point the finger at those nuns and those priests. And, 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 and you know, I'd I love to be able to stand here and tell you all about the politics playing in the church and and, and, and and this great big God that they have on a great big throne up there with a big black book, and he's marking off X's and O's, and you're going to go to hell in a handbasket and all that crazy stuff. That's what I love like to be able to stand here and tell you about what I need to be able to stand here and tell you about in order to make amends to the churches. That that's all I could see in my spiritual sickness. In my spiritual sickness, all I could see was the negative in everyone, anyone. I couldn't see any positive in me. I couldn't see any positive in you it, it didn 't fit my purpose. I needed to continue to be able to drink in the manner in which I wanted to drink as a result of that. I got very, very spiritually sick very quickly, and two and a half years after entering that monastery um, I decided, I used to have brilliant ideas back then, my sponsor doesn't let me have brilliant ideas today, but uh, I had brilliant ideas back then, and, and I, I decided that Holy Mother, the church and I, were not seeing eye to eye. She was wrong, and I was right, and with all of the arrogance that I could muster up, I packed myself back into my A&P shopping bags, and off to a monastery, or off to the, the campus, I went, um... I I moved on campus to finish up the last year and a half of my college career. The best thing that I can take about that is that I stayed drunk. I I mean, I got drunk in the morning, I got drunk in the afternoon, and I got drunk at night. Uh, I met the young lady who was to eventually become my wife. She was relatively sane when I met her. I'd love to be able to stay the same for when we parted. Uh, I'll tell you what, that beautiful, beautiful lady that helped me into that emergency room that I described earlier, sat at the foot of my bed for that 14 days and she prayed. and, 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 and She didn't pray that her husband get better and she didn't pray that I die. What she prayed was, dear God, let this living hell end. Uh, uh, when I met her in, in that um, senior year of college, when I met her, she was a beautiful little blue-eyed blonde. She was a graphic artist. She was a kind of a kid that looks at the world and sees form and art and beauty and color and all the wonderful, beautiful things that an artist sees when they look at the world. And and then I happened in her life. And, and as she sat at the foot of that bed praying, uh, she would pray that, Dear God, let this hell come in end. And she would look on every night on her way home from that hospital, she would look at every oncoming trucker or bridge as an opportunity to maybe slam her car into it and end it for herself. Uh, she was suicidal two years before I hit bottom and she didn't drink and she didn't drug. All she did was dare to love a practicing alcoholic without some kind of program of recovery for herself. I met her in, uh, around Christmas time. Uh, by Easter time, she informed me that we were going steady. Now, what did I know? I was drunk, so I said. And, uh, and, and then she informed me we were going to her mother's house for Easter dinner. I thought I'll have a couple double headers for that one. And I did. I had a couple double headers, and off to Mama's house we went. Now, I walked in the front door, and I fell in love, not with her and not with her Mama. I fell in love with the kitchen counter. It had bits of whiskey on it, some of it was top shelf stuff. I found out this was a family with a refrigerator on the front porch with nothing in it but beer. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: had a <it> wrong. <laughs>
0: I'll tell you what, I got drunk that day. I made a fool out of myself that day too. Nothing new. And and uh, for some reason they even invited me back. I graduated from school that May. They threw me a little graduation party. I thought they really understand the caliber of person they got here. <laughs> uh, and, and I went to their graduation party for me. I packed myself into my, my two AMP shopping bags. I moved into their living room. I parked myself on their couch and I stayed all summer long. <laughs> they didn't invite me to stay at all. Their daughter went back to school to finish up her college. I stayed. Thing. I thought this was a real pushy deal. I eat their food, drink their booze, and sleep on their couch. Uh, they finally, like midsummer, they convinced me. Like, look, you graduated. You got these things called degrees. Like, maybe you ought to do something productive with yourself. Like, get a job. I hadn't put much thought to that, but see, I had a degree. I had a degree in philosophy, a degree in theology, and a degree in English. Well, we all know the degree in philosophy entitles you to sit on a stump and think. That does not pay much. It really doesn't. So I I put some thought to it, and I figured, well, with a degree in theology, about the only other thing I could do is teach religion. So I figured I would get a job at the local Catholic high school teaching the good old Catholic kids about their good old Catholic God. And that's exactly what I did. I got a job teaching religion and English at the local Catholic high school and teaching the good old Catholic kids about their good old Catholic God, and I did it stoned out of my mind. Now, I was alcoholic. I wasn't necessarily a student. I knew that I couldn't go to this upright Catholic school reeking of booze every day. So I did what Dr. Bob does in Dr. Bob's Nightmare. I found those lovely white tranquilizers to keep the shakes away during a professional day. And I would pop those suckers in, I would zoom off to work, and I would teach. I found out that my homeroom was on the third floor of that building. I could, at 307, the bell would ring. I could close my room up. I could get down three flights of stairs, out the door, across the parking lot, in my car, out of the parking lot before the senior students. No teacher has ever accomplished that. Age. There was a bar down the end of the street. I'd go down there, get about three or four double-headers, peppermint schnapps. Nobody can smell that. I couldn't be And then I'd go back to school to be able to sign my name legibly. And so that's what I would do. That four years was to see me try to control my drinking every way I could. I went from cocktail lounges to beer bars with shots and beer. I, 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 I did the kegger out in the woods with the kids. I did I mean, anything. I went from beer to wine, from wine to whiskey. From, I tried I tried countless schools. I married that young lady to control my drinking and she didn't do a very good job. <laughs> I told her she didn't do a very good job of it. Her family said that if she was just better in bed, a better cook or a better housekeeper, her old man wouldn't drink the way he drank. I I, I had no concept about the uh, the, uh, family disease and alcoholism. Just none. She felt bad because she couldn't control my drinking. She truly did. At any rate, she and I—you know—we had we had all kinds of crazy stuff begin to go on. I—I I, I learned some extremely powerful coping skills at that time. I didn't know they were coping skills, but I—I I don't know about you, but I used to wake up in weird places with weird people doing weird things, <laughs> and, and and all of it was inappropriate. But uh, I mean, just—you learn to survive those kind of things, you know? They're degrading and, and embarrassing and shameful, and, and, and you just learn to survive, and one of my survival techniques was, anytime I began to come to, I would lay there very still, with my eyes very tightly shut, very still, thinking, I wonder where I'm at this time, and, and I'll tell you what, it never, never failed me, I would begin to get to come to, and I would smell clean sheets. I knew I wasn't at home. Uh, and, and, and I would lay there waiting to hear some kind of sound that would give me an idea of where I was this time. And, and, and it would, it, inevitably, I would hear that little bell ding, and I would hear that lovely little nurse come on the PA system, and she'd say, Doctor, so-and-so, report to thus and so. And I'd say, Oh, God, I landed in a hospital again. And I would struggle to get up only to find out They'd strap me down with those big leather straps again. And then I would struggle to get up and I would look to see what damage I'd done this time, only to find my wrist slit and soaked in blood again. And I would lay my head back against that plastic line pillow and my heart would sink down into the pit of my stomach and I'd say, God, why? Why me? How could I have landed here again? We were going to count swizzle sticks. My wife was going to count my drinks. They were going to shut me off after a couple. How could I land here again? God, not again. And I'll tell you, they would keep me for three days, five days, seven days, 14 days observation. They would tell me what a terribly nervous person I was. They would give me a, what a Valium deficiency I had. They would give me an open script for Valium and send me home. And I would be off to the I mean, I knew that Valium was a very dry pill. It takes at least a case of beer to wash it down. I would drive that on the way home, and I would be off to the races. And, 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 and it would go on like this. It went on like this for four years. Uh, finally, four years into this, the school decided that they were not hiring me back for a fifth year of teaching because I wasn't state certified. It doesn't take a Ph.D. to figure out you can't be a state certified religion teacher. There's a division between church and state in this country. I couldn't have been state certified in religion if I wanted to be. Uh, they used that excuse to save my professional reputation, and I owe the church a very great debt thanks for that. Um, at any rate, they'd let me go. I now had more great resentments, uh, and, and I did anything and everything for the next two and a half years to get booze. If you can think of it, I did it. Immoral, illegal, fattening, I did it. Uh, my wife and I would fight. We would argue. We would go into these crazy... She would confront my drinking. She'd say, this is addiction. You're drinking too much of... And 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 she happened to love Harlequin romances, and and, and when I hit bottom, she had two thousand Harlequin romances, and and she would I would wake up on my dirty little couch in the living room, and and one day I woke up there and there was two of my vodka bottles there with a little note on it, and the little note said, "This is not liking to drink. This is addiction." So I was furious when I woke up. So I took my note off my bottles and I took it upstairs and I stuck it on her Harlequin romances, and I said, "This is not liking to." Read. this is addiction. And, and oh, I mean, we would go through this insane, crazy, back-and-forth wars that we would do. And, and always, always get myself in trouble. I'll tell you, and then, back then, I would have, like I said, brilliant ideas. One day, she confronted my drinking, and I figured, I know what I will do. I will call a a See, I knew about you folks. I knew you was out there. I'll call that A&A place. Uh, I knew, I used to tell my senior students in religion class, if they ever had a drinking problem, you call this A&A. It's a subversive underground organization. <laughs> they will pick you up, take you to a couple of their subversive underground meetings, and they will teach you to drink right. So I figured I will call A&A. So, it was a hot, muggy, miserable July morning. It was one of those mornings in the Pittsburgh area where you're sweating before you ever get the sheet off of you. I mean, I crawled out of bed, I picked up the phone, I dialed A&A's number. Now this lovely lady came on the phone and in like 30 seconds flat she's insulting my dignity. She's asking me stupid questions like, can you go for a whole day without a drink? I said, lady, you have absolutely no idea who you are talking to. I am a dignified professional in the community here. She said, listen, Mr. Dignified, none of those twisted up little cigarettes, no pills and no booze all day long and we'll send someone around to pick your dignified little butt up today. So I hung up the phone after giving her my pertinent information with my first AA resentment. I didn't know that that's what it was, but I had an AA resentment. And uh, to meet that resentment, I had another brilliant idea. I had a brilliant idea at 8 o'clock in the morning that I was going to get dressed for this AA meeting looking like I didn't need you, people. I'm going to get look, go to this meeting looking like the dignified professional that I am. Now, uh, I decided I would go into the bathroom and shave. That was a novel feat back then. I was shaken on the outside. I'm shaking on the inside. I go into the bathroom. Forty-five minutes later, I emerge with blood running right <laughs> over. <laughs> me. I mean, there's tissue paper all over me. I'm still shaking. I'm still sweating. And I decided I will get dressed in my best three-piece suit. So I get dressed in this best three-piece suit. And here I am pacing back and forth at 11 o'clock in the morning. It's in the shade the humidity is 87% I'm sweating bucket after bucket of sweat and I'm dressed in a three piece suit uh, look, waiting for an AA meeting at 7:30 tonight. <laughs> now you gotta get a picture. This is a three-piece suit I had drank in for well over seven years. It had not been cleaned in It reeked of booze, B.O. and vomit. There were like little burn holes when seeds falling up uh, I mean, I mean, it was bad. It was really bad. And, and, and here I am waiting. This gentleman comes by, and his three-piece suit didn't. Quite this car didn't look like any alcoholic car I had ever seen, and, and off to this A meeting we went. Now we got to this meeting in Monroeville, it was a great big old meeting, and we got in the back door, and I took one look around that room and I gasped this sigh of relief. <gasps> Thank God, I can't possibly be an alcoholic. There was not a man in that room a year younger than God. I'm too young to be an alcoholic. I knew it. And they dragged me down here in what they called the Dummy Row. I really resented that. And then they started to pour me one of these lousy cups of AA coffee. Now, I'll tell you what, I didn't like coffee back then, but I certainly didn't like your coffee back then. And then they dumped sugar in it, saying it would take the shakes the way. I don't take sugar in my coffee. And then they dump cream in it, and I don't take cream in my coffee either. And I figured, uh uh-huh. I know what these old farts are up to. They can see what a nervous condition I have, and they fill that cup of coffee right up to the brim. They want to see me try to pick it up and spill it so they can laugh at me. (laughs) I'll sit here and die of thirst. (laughs) And I'm sitting there dying of thirst and this old battle axe gets up there and she's babbling on and 45 minutes later she's still up there babbling on. I am dying in the worst piece of cotton moth I've ever had in my life. And I figured, you know, I, I kind of slide, that styrofoam does not slide on the stand. And the coffee went everywhere and they took their anchor handkerchiefs out and they mopped it up and they said, keep coming back kids, you're in the right place, kid. I cussed the skinny little ones out, out loud, the, the big guys I cussed out under my breath. <laughs> and, but for some reason, for some reason I actually kept going back to a a meetings. Now my ex-wife and I figured it out, it's because that old fart showed up every night and drugged me to another meeting for the next nine <laughs> nights. At any rate, I decided I really, really would try this stuff, so I went cold turkey. And I'll tell you what, I had an experience in nine days that I refer to as the Beginner's Guide to Serenity. If you want to know what the Beginner's Guide to Serenity is, it goes like this. Drink long enough, drink hard enough, drink heavy enough totally saturate absolutely every cell in your body with a cellular craving for alcohol and then cold turkey it. You you will shake apart from the inside out. Your stomach will feel like a swallowed ground glass. You will shake on the outside. You'll shake on the inside. You will know where your liver ends and your pancreas begins. I mean you will sweat bucket after bucket after bucket of sweat. You will vibrate right off your dirty little couch like I used to. You will run to the bathroom. I mean emergency run to the bathroom. You will not whether you should stick your head in or sit down on the commode. I was very lucky we had a very small bathroom. I could sit in the commode and throw up in the sink. <laughs> so that began my sobriety. And um, I was going to these meetings and feeling like that and suddenly on the ninth day all of that shakiness went away. The shakes went away. The sweats went away. I felt human again. And I thought Aha! Uh-huh. That's what the A's are talking about when they're talking about serenity. And I got it in nine days. This, is, this has got to be some kind of record or something, you know? I'm going to go to the beginner's meeting tonight, at the Sunday meeting, and I'm going to tell all the newcomers that if they keep coming back, like I kept coming back, they could get this serenity stuff too. I mean, how hard can it possibly be? I got it in nine days, you know? And, and so I went to the beginner's meeting, and, and I got up there and I told them all about this newfound serenity that I am. And this old timer looked at me and shook his head like they shake their head at us. And then he shook his finger at me like they shake their fingers at us. And he said, Man, Jack, I get real scared of alcohol withdrawal seizures whenever you shakes away that sudden. And I looked at him and said, I ain't felt this good in ten years. What are you talking about? And I'll tell you what we got up from the beginners meeting. We're on our way out to the regular meeting, and I was somewhere right up around there when I went into a 20-minute grand mal alcohol withdrawal seizure. I'm here to tell you that I remember very little of that meeting. I remember coming vaguely to on a very, very cold tile floor. It felt like I was laying on marble. There was sweat running all over me, worse than it is right now. I could feel every square inch of my skin, and it felt like there were ants crawling all over me, and I couldn't move to rub them off. There were and there were people standing around me and I couldn't make them out. I couldn't focus very well and, and, and I could hear them but it was all garbled. I couldn't make out what they were saying. May I stuffed something in my mouth and I couldn't talk but what was worse was in my head I could feel my brain snapping and sizzling and, 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 and crackling in there and I couldn't shake it off. I couldn't make it go and I, I couldn't maintain my dignity and get up and, and walk out of there. And, and they took me out of that meeting in an ambulance. They took me to the East Suburban Hospital, East of Cleveland. Uh, they kept me for nine days. They poked me, prodded me, scanned me. They told me there's no such thing as an alcohol withdrawal seizure. They told me I was a terribly nervous person, could use some valium and some sleeping pills, and they sent me home. Uh, I bought that case of beer. I was off to the races six months later. My, uh, old lady said, uh, do something or else, and I hated the way she said or else. Uh, And I said, I'll do anything in those moments of insanity when we say, I'll do anything. And she said, good, I had this place called a detox. Uh, and they said, you sounded like a likely candidate. We're going to take you down to St. Francis Hospital Detox in Pittsburgh. And I said, okay. And they took me down there, and they kept me for nine days. And they didn't tell me that I was a nervous person. They didn't tell me that I had that in deficiency either. What they did is they brought my beautiful wife, my, my little sister who was 13 at the time, and a little blue-eyed blonde, just the most adorable thing, and my mama. They they invited them into my detox room and sat them on my detox bed. And and they sat me in a little plastic chair and Dr. Toyski walked in and he put <coughs> his bony little finger right in the center of my chest and he said, David, I want you to look into the eyes of these women who love you while I tell you what I need to tell you. And he proceeded to tell me that I have what is known as an alcoholic cardiomyopathy, an alcoholic heart. That should I choose to put a mood-mind-altering chemical in my body, again, I would be dead within six months. I heard, I felt my heart sink down into the pain of my stomach. And I heard my voice in my ears say those things that I had said for years. Things like, I'm sorry, and I watched those three women cry. I never meant to hurt you, and they cried harder. I'll never drink again, mm-hmm. and they cried I promise. And they cried harder. They had heard these things. They had heard these things over and over and over and (laughs) over again. They meant nothing. They meant nothing coming out of me. I left that hospital that night. It was November 17th of 1980. That night I was drunk. The next night I was drunk. The night after that I was drunk. By the end of December, I was worse than I ever was. By the end of January, my wife had begun to abandon our apartment. By the end of February, I had begun to swell up. By the end of March, I had acquired a collection of garbage bags through the living room, through the kitchen, in the bathroom, filled up the tub. By the end of March, I was swelling so badly, I would call and manipulate people to bring 16-ounce Stoney's returnables and stick them in the fridge for me. My wife had begun to uh, stop by once a day to see if I was dead yet. Uh, at one t- time she had two cats. The cats had kittens, the kittens had kittens. We had 17 cats in a four-room apartment and no clean litter boxes. What I would do is I would come and manipulate people to bring me my stonies, stick it in the refrigerator and as soon as they were out the door I would roll off my filthy couch I would use my arms because I was so slow and I couldn't walk on the bottoms of my feet anymore. I would drag myself on my stomach through that cat ship to the refrigerator. I would palm a bottle of that stonies between my two paws because I couldn't use a bottle opener anymore. I would lean against that refrigerator because it felt so good against my back. It was so cold. And I would shove that bottle up under the bottom drawer handle and break the top of it off. And I would lean lean there and I would lift that broken bottle to my mouth and I would begin to suck down some of that beer. And I didn't care that the bottle was broken. I didn't care if there was glass in it. I didn't care that my lips were bleeding and there was blood running and there was beer running. It didn't matter. I needed a fix. I needed to to make this sick feeling go away. I had to get enough in my stomach to just be able to crawl back to my filthy couch. And when I would get back to that couch, I would look into the bottom of that bottle and I would curse God and myself and my church and my education and my family and anything that was ever sacred in David's life. Because I didn't want to drink, I needed to drink. It was no longer a matter of, David, would you care for beer? It was a matter of getting the hell out of my way. I need a fix. I stayed in what I heard a gentleman at Punderson one time call the loneliness of loneliness. At one time in religion class, I had learned that hell was the total absence of the presence of God in your life, and if that's true, I don't know if that's true, but if it is, I truly knew hell because I knew the absence of the presence of God. He couldn't get through my arrogance, my ego, and my pride. I wouldn't let him in. I blocked even the grace of God. I stayed that way until May 26th, uh, at that point, uh, the day that I described earlier, uh, when my wife came home to see if I was dead yet, uh, and she looked at me and she asked me would I please go to the hospital, and she and her mother took me to the uh, Westmoreland County Hospital, that was when I argued with the intake nurse, and she said I was having a heart attack, and, and, and uh, my blood alcohol level was 047 Uh, I went into a, in and out of a coma for the next 14 days. They pronounced me dead twice. Uh, When they pronounced me dead, I did, uh, the first time I experienced being up in the corner of the room watching them work on me, the second time I did experience a warm and wonderful white light. I do not believe that's a miracle in David Manichak's life. I do believe that was God teaching me to learn to live life on life's terms, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I came out of the coma after 14 days, and for the next four or five days, they found out I could walk a little bit, I could talk a little bit, I could feed myself, and I could go pee all by myself. <laughs> Tremendous feats for an adult male of 29 years' of age. Uh, they asked me if I was willing to go to treatment. I said yes. I have no idea why. Gateway had come up with uh, treatment for me. Gateway Rehabilitation Center. And they were ready to put me up for 28 days. They sent me to treatment. And I'll tell you what, I remember very little treatment. I remember them getting me there, and I was very, very sick. And and they gave me this thing called the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and then they told me it was a text and you needed to study it and the <coughs> English teacher popped right out of me and, and I began to diagram sentences in the book I told them how ill written the book was how ill edited the book was uh, how if they gave me half a chance with all my degrees I could really rewrite this book for you folks and, and so it would really work and they promptly took my big book away from me <laughs> they told me I was going to have to go to AA meetings and I was going to have to be loved back to life by these big books that were sitting in the rooms about, all oh, it's anonymous. And I said, but I have degrees. And they said, so does a rectal thermometer. I mean, no one <laughs> and, and then they said, David, we're going to send you to a halfway house. Well, I had no clue as to what a halfway house was. But the old lady had made it abundantly clear she was not taking me home. So no home, halfway home. No home, home. Half- I mean, it was a no-brainer even for me. So I figured, okay, I will go to this halfway house. And then they lowered the boom. They said they were going to send me to some god awful place called Gainesville, Ohio. I said, mean, You got to be shitting me, Gainesville, Ohio. You got to be kidding. I mean, that can't possibly be good. I didn't know anything existed beyond Pennsylvania, and, and I really didn't want to know about it if it did. But Painesville, oh, I know. Oh, I'll tell you what, they packed me into two A&B shopping bags. They dropped me off at Lake House's porch, and, and back then it was gray and dirty looking. And, 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 and then they beat me out of town before I could change my mind. And there I was, stuck in Painesville. <laughs> I walked in there and the place was dirty looking and the floor was, it had this matted down green carpet with coffee stains all over it. The walls were filthy looking and the residents were filthy looking. <laughs> Some of these guys had been to jail. I mean, I wasn't I was convinced I was going to be raped, beaten, and mugged all in the same area. I locked my head against the door just for protection. I mean, I this place was run by a woman. How good could it possibly be? <laughs> <laughs> to eggs, insult to injury. She was black. You insane people in Ohio sold booze in grocery stores. I couldn't even go to Convenient without running it. Right across the street from this dump was a bar. How in God's name am I supposed to get clean and sober in a dump like this? Needless to say, my defects of character sobered up long before my brains ever did. <laughs> and I owe a very, very great debt of thanks to Julia Magruder who was the beautiful, beautiful black lady who ran that halfway house at the time. She sat me down uh, she let me know that it didn't matter, that I was the wrong color I could get sober anyways. <laughs> she also let me know that I could keep my big mouth shut, not drink, go to meetings, comment, and say my prayers, find a sponsor, work the 12 steps of alcoholic sober, or die. <laughs> We had not gotten off to a great start. So. <laughs> uh, you people terrified me. They sent me a meeting after, meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting I didn't know if I was going to a meeting or coming from a Marshall Parker at every AA meeting back. I, I think I you always p- pick the worst people to read. I mean I thing. You made me sign these things that you sat around and I knew they were contracts. And one of these days, you're going to call in my markers and I am not going to be able to pay for all these meetings that I've been to. my soul is going to be in And then knew people wanted to touch me. Oh, my God. You said stupid things like, keep coming back. And, and you said things like, if you, I didn't want what you had. I, the way you clutched and grabbed and kissed each other, I figured it had to be a social disease. Just like, don't touch me. And I, you scared me to death, you just terrified me. I wanted to become like a flower in the wallpaper somewhere, just leave me alone, don't touch it. And then you gave me this idiot for a sponsor. Oh, <laughs> God, he was so stupid, he was like a box of rocks. He tried to convince me that I would stay sober, cleaning out ashtrays, ashtray disaster, well. and picking up chairs. I mean, he was nuts. I mean, it was absolutely insane. And, and I said, David, you need to start working on these things of steps. And I'll tell you what, I had no problem with step one. I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. I knew that my life was unmanageable. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt in my heart that I was tragically flawed. I knew that I did not drink like other people. I knew that my way did not work. I didn't think your way would, but I knew my way didn't. And, and that faced me with steps two and three. And I had a terrible time there. You see, I knew God could restore me to sanity. I did not believe that God would restore me to sanity. Not me. Not after taking the beautiful talents that God had blessed me with, the beautiful priesthood that he had blessed me with, taking it and dragging it through the filth that I had drunk it through. Certainly he might bless you. He might restore you to sanity, but never me. And the old-timers were so kind to us back then. And they said things like, Man, that's Nothing but pure, unadulterated ego. Now you think you're beyond the grace of God. Get off God's throne. He isn't done with it. And I said, Uh-uh, <laughs> You need to start talking to God. And I said, I don't have anything pleasant to say to God. And they said, good, say something unpleasant, but he loves to hear from strangers. (laughs) And one of them handed me this gold watch, and he said, I want you to go back to that halfway house. I want you to find an empty chair. I want you to drag it up to your bedroom. I want you to sit on your bed and put your concept of God, whatever you conceive him to be, you picture him in that chair, and you talk to him for 15 minutes every day. I don't care if you nag, you gripe, you complain, you cuss, you do whatever you need. Do, but you talk to God for 15 minutes every day and you get all that grumbling out of you. And I looked at him like he's nuts. Nobody gives me gold watches. I hop in. (laughs) Anyway, I was willing to try just about anything. And so I I took his watch and I found it there and and I began to talk to God for 15 minutes. And I grumbled up a storm. And and, and I'll tell you what, some astounding things began to happen when this little hillbilly began to talk to God for 15 minutes every day. And it didn't matter what I was saying. It didn't even matter how I was saying it. I got grumbled out. It started to turn me into 10 minutes of grumbling and 5 minutes talking to God. And then it turned me into 5 minutes of grumbling and 10 minutes talking to God. And then it turned me into 15 minutes of just talking to God. Just my heart to his ears. Just, dear God, please help me do what these people are telling me to do. Help me to turn my will and my life over of their care, because I see a light in their eyes. I can see their soul, and I haven't seen my soul in my eyes for a long, long time. God, help me to do what these people are telling me to do. And that's where step two began to happen for me, where I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. and And... It was astounding because I could confuse a one-car funeral back then, and the old-timers told me that they were not going to allow me to do that, and and they said, we're going to teach you very slow, and we're going to teach you simple little kitty stories, and that's exactly what they did. They they made me just learn little lessons from simple little things. They told me the story about the gentleman who goes to Niagara Falls, and and he stretches a tightrope across Niagara Falls, and he hops up in the falls, and he sits a little wheelbarrow down, and he walks that tightrope, pushing this little wheelbarrow all the way to Canada, and a great Crowd had gathered, and and, they, and he hops down, and they're cheering and shouting. And he asks them two questions: Do you have faith, and do you trust that I can do that again? And they all said, "Yeah, we have faith and trust. You can do it. We saw you do it." He hops up on the wire, puts the little wheelbarrow on, pushes it all the way back to the, to America, and and that crowd had gathered, and they're all cheering and shouting. And, and he hops down, and he asks them the same two questions: Do you have faith, and do you trust that I can do that again? And they said, "We saw you do it twice. Of course, we have faith and trust that you can do it again." And he hopped up on the wire, and he sat the little wheelbarrow down, and he turned to the crowd and said, If you have faith, and if you trust that I can do it again, get in the wheelbarrow. (laughs) (laughs) And the old-timer said, David, step three is that simple. Just have faith and trust that no matter how shaky it gets out on the wire... Stay in God's will barrel. Whatever happens out on that wire, no matter how scared you get out on there, if the greatest things in the world happen, if you win the lottery today, it's God that's going to get you to your pillow tonight, clean and sober. Just stay in God's will Just suit up, show up, and stay in God's will barrel. If the worst tragedy happens, just stay in God's will barrel and he will get you to whatever you through, whatever you need to do. Whatever energy you need to get to, he will get you there. And and that's step And that's how they began. And I'll tell you what, those of you who know me know that three years into my sobriety, um, I got a phone call one Sunday that my house was on fire. That that a gentleman that I had sponsored uh, got drunk, he broke into my home, he lit my house on fire, and he split. Uh, I couldn't, I, 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 i charging across Painesville. I saw four foot flames leaping out of the roof of my home. I couldn't even get in to get the dog out. I learned a whole new concept of powerlessness. <coughs> and, and I'll tell you what, you people showed up you people held me and you hugged me and you said it'd be okay and, 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 and I, you told me I wasn't allowed to kill him. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was astounding the love that I got that day. You took me home with you. You said, here's a telephone. Call your family in Pennsylvania. Tell them of this terrible tragedy that has befallen you. And here's a towel and a washcloth. and here's the bathroom. Go in there, wash the tears of self, pity out of your eyes. We're going to make you, we're going to take you to minute Sunday tonight. We're going to make you read the steps. I looked at you and said, I was just bummed down. You want me to go to a dang AA meeting? Are you insane or something? And you drugged me to dinner Sunday, and you made me read the steps, and I cried all the way through, and I was basket case, and you held me, and you hugged me, and you said it would be okay. I, and you said things like, I've got a dress here, and I've got some china for you. And, and you know, my son just grew out of here, I'll bring you I had a better wardrobe three days after the fire. <laughs> you people dressed me in Jordache jeans, Britannia tops, the outfit that I wear to I wear in honor of the old-timers of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I, did, I needed to lead Lake County Tuesday, and I didn't have a decent outfit to do that. Some old-timers took up a collection, sent them some Alamons out to the mall to buy this outfit for me, from the skin out. That's what I ate it for me. When I was naked you clothed me, when I was homeless, you took me in and when I was hungry you fed me. God. I'll tell you what, astounding things happen when I put steps one, two, and three in my life and I stayed in Gonzaleur. Uh two weeks after that fire, I got a phone call from a nurse in the Pennsylvania. She said, David, if you'd like to see your brother George alive, you'd better come now. He's dying of myoblastic leukemia as a result of Agent orange from Vietnam. I didn't have a car that could make it to PA. Um, I made one phone call from work. Seven of you AAs pulled a B B&E at my house. You broke in. You went through a window. You invaded my privacy. You packed my underwear for me. You packed my clothes. You packed uh, a big book. Uh, 12 and 12, you had an acceptance part, uh, and a partnership pamphlet. You had an AA sitting in the driveway with his car full of gas and a week's vacation to take me to Pennsylvania and to sit with me while I watched my brother George die of leukemia. Now, my brother George at one time was one of you big guys. He weighed in at like 230, 240 pounds, and when we buried him, he we weighed 86 pounds. Mm-hmm. As I looked at him in that bed that week, he he was just a skeleton with skin stretched over it. <coughs> and as I stood over top of him, uh, I remembered, I remembered back to that beautiful, wonderful, warm, white light that I had experienced when I was in the coma. And I had never ever talked about it because I figured if I told anybody, you would tell me I'm crazy and you'd lock me up in Laurelwood and I'd never get out. And, and I was terrified of that. And, I, and, and my brother looked up at me and he, 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 instead of asking for water, which he usually did because he had tubes going everywhere and his mouth would get dry, he looked at me and he said, what are you thinking? And I shared with him that warm and wonderful white night experience that I had. And he looked at me and I watched his soul light up in his eyes. And I watched him say, that was not a dream. And then he said the words that AA had said to me. It will be okay. I believe I had that experience just to help my brother George die peacefully. I believe I had that experience just to help him learn to live life on life's terms. And death is a part of life. It's a part of life that every one of us is going to have to go through, start raving nakedly alone. And there are going to be those times like a few years ago when I had to sit with my sponsor in the intensive care ward and I had to watch the machine get shut off and I had to watch him slip away and and there was nothing I could do about it. All I could do is be there and to be loving and caring as I watched my sponsors subway. Those beautiful miracles in our life that we have an active part of being a member of our own lives. And, and, and death being a part of that. Just a part of life on life's terms. When I put steps one, two, and three in my life, I can look at an inventory, I can share that inventory with God, myself, and another human being, without fear. I can, I can look at defects of character and humbly ask God to remove them. And have faith and trust that if God can remove from me the compulsion to drink, he could remove any defect that stands in the way of my usefulness to God and to my fellows. And, and to look at the inventory and the amends steps. And, you know, when I got to the amend steps, I wanted to tell you about my old man. I wanted to tell you how he used to beat us in drunken rages when we were little boys and we didn't deserve that shit. And, and, and you people sat me down and said, David, I don't care what kind of old man you had. What kind of son were you? And you made me write out an in inventory of what kind of son David was. And I wasn't proud of the results. Because what I learned was I learned that my father had fed me, clothed me, and housed me for 18 years of my life. Never once had he ever seen anything come out of this son other than hate, remorse, bitterness, vindictiveness, and fear. I owed my old man amends for my or not his. When I was able to make those amends, astounding things happened. I was able to be with my dad before he died of a long and lingering bone cancer. I could clean him up. I could feed him up. I could nurture him. I could love him. I no longer wanted his warm, sticky blood on my hand. That's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's when I knew that spiritual awakening as a result of these steps had happened. That educational variety that we read about in the second appendix in the back of the book that, that, that said, I'm not like I used to be. My feeble attempts. At, at trying to work these things called steps had changed me. I no longer wanted his warm sticky blood on my hands. I don't do things the way that I used to do 27 years ago. For some reason, the grace of God has transformed me with your help, those 12 steps and the 12 traditions, into somebody I've never ever been. I've never been capable of dealing with life on life's terms. And as long as I suit up, show up, and stay in God's will astounding and wonderful things happen. I believe in having... And sobriety. I love events like this. I love to congratulate the home group on many, 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 many years of carrying the message of alcoholics and all Those of you who know me know that I still have a home group in pains. <laughs> I still take newly sober people in. I'm really crazy sometimes. Uh, they teach me much more than I could ever possibly teach them. Uh, I believe in going to the dances and the pundersons and the conferences and all of those coupons that we pick, the anniversaries, these wonderful gifts that we have. Uh, I I believe in, in celebrating this thing called life because we're living it and we're breathing it and it's great. Those of you who know me know that a little over a year ago, January 26th, I went into a massive heart attack in my living room. If you really want to know the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, I go into a massive heart attack in my living room. There are three AAs there. One knows how to dial 911 and clear the way for the paramedics and the other two were certified at CPR. They began to do exactly what they were taught to do in CPR and without them I would have been dead. Three members of Alcoholics Anonymous breathing life back into me once again as God did 26, 27 years ago. Why they breathe life back into a worthless drunk, I have no idea. Why they sent me to Alcoholics Anonymous and you people taught me to live this life, I have no idea, but I am forever grateful. You are a great part of my life and I need you as much today as I have ever, ever needed you. Thank you for all of you beautiful things that you have given me. Uh, I also believe in, in enjoying this, this recovery stuff. Please get in the middle of the bed, enjoy sobriety. If, uh, the, one of the, the old timers out of our way used to say, working a 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous is kinda like having sex. If you're not enjoying it, you're doing something wrong. Doing <laughs> get yourself a sponsor, get yourself a big book, get yourself a home group, do the steps, work out of that book, and believe me, you will come to enjoy your sobriety. He used to also say that being asked to speak at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, was kind of like being asked to have sex. (laughs) <laughs> it's always an honor to be asked. <laughs> At my age, you worry a little bit about your performance. <laughs> and you know when it's over, you're going to feel good. <laughs> well, for the most part, it's over, and I feel a dang sight better than I do a lot better. But I would like to thank you. It is great that we can laugh together, that we can cry together, and that we can walk. Uh, trudge this road uh, of happy destiny together. Thank you. Do we close with the Lord's Prayer? No.